0: You're listening to REACHMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Linda Emanuel. Dr. Emanuel is the Bueller Professor of Geriatric Medicine at Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. She's also the director of the Bueller Center on Aging, Health and Society, and of the Interdisciplinary Program in Professionalism and Human Rights. Dr. Emanuel, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We're going to be discussing the economic devastation as the second silent blow to families that accompanies terminal illness and does the medical profession have an obligation to provide economic resilient options. First of all, Dr. Emanuel, would you describe devastation as you use it?
1: Certainly. What we find is that, or what we have known for almost a decade plus now, is that 40% of the households in America, when they have a, a member of their household who is seriously ill and dies, suffer economically enough so that they fall to the poverty line and below. And so this is what would count as economic devastation as a result of illness. It's apparently much worse in countries that are less wealthy than we are, but even in our own countries, A very large minority of the population uh, has sufficient economic devastation that they reach the poverty line and below, at least for a while.
0: Who are these families and patients?
1: We unfortunately have very little understanding as to who the families are, and I think that's one of the things that's really quite shocking, given the level of economic devastation and given that it's closely correlated with illness. The fact that the medical profession knows so little about who they are is really something for us to sit up and and listen to. We know a little bit. We know that of families who file for bankruptcy, even though a large number of them have health insurance, many of them are prompted to file for bankruptcy, at least in part, because of medical bills. So that's the kind of thing that we know. We believe that elders and the households that they come from may be somewhat more protected than households where the middle age range person is affected by illness and dies. Uh, So it appears that when there's a death in the family of the major breadwinner or someone in the middle range of years when they're economically productive, when it's that person who dies, those are the households that may be particularly at risk.
0: I have seen where these kinds of families fall into a spiral that takes them into a poverty trap that goes on multi-generational, that the families are poverty-stricken, the children don't pursue their education, and so the whole cycle repeats itself over and over again. How would you respond to this?
1: Economists do describe something called the poverty trap, and we know in medicine that there is a pretty tight correlation between poverty and illness, and perhaps conversely between illness and poverty. That is, the causal connections may well go in both directions. And so where the economists are describing a poverty trap, I think it's time for us also to describe an illness poverty trap, so that if an illness causes a family to tip below a certain poverty level that the economists call a threshold level, it's no longer economically possible, it's no longer economically rational, as the economists would say, for that household to send the child to school or the children to school no longer rational or possible for the family caregiver to stay in the workplace and earn a salary. And so once a family has tipped below that level, they cannot invest enough in the upcoming generation or in their immediate circumstances that the household can recover after the person has died or even in the next generation they can't recover.
0: If you step back, though, five to six years and look at the people who've gone through this, who recovers and who doesn't recover? Is there any place we can look for answers?
1: There's very little that we can tell at this point beyond what we've already mentioned. And again, it just so strongly underscores the absence of very important knowledge. It's really quite shocking to me that the medical profession doesn't know more than it does. We do know from economically constrained countries that people who are in households with family member who has malaria, they spend about 10% of their income on curing the malaria and they do recover. Those with somebody with TB is more in the middle range of 40 to 50% expenditure and that seems to be about where the tipping point is. Those with HIV AIDS members of the family those households spend 100% of their annual income and it seems that they don't recover. So extrapolating backwards to what happens in wealthier countries such as our own, we might well imagine that those who have illnesses that require a great deal of medical attention that take out members who are young and otherwise would be economically productive and households that start out poor Those might be the households that get into a trap in our country, if indeed they do get into a trap. We don't have the data on that. We do know that there's economic devastation. We don't know about an illness poverty trap for this country.
0: Diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, congestive heart failure. Do we have any data on those chronic diseases?
1: We have data on what the costs of care are, the direct medical costs of care for those, and I would add cancer as a chronic illness, since many cancers now are really chronic illnesses and may lead to death but may be very long-term chronic conditions from from which one can recover for long stretches of time and potentially indefinitely, but that cost a great deal while they're being treated. So we do have data on the costs of those illness care treatment plans. What we don't have data on nearly as much as we need is what happens to the households as a result of those chronic illnesses. So I would dream of a phase of medicine in which we not only have our cancer centers and our cardiac care departments and our other relevant, perhaps our pulmonary care departments, all accountable not just on the technical medical aspects of the care that we provide, not just on the disease outcomes, but on the household economic outcomes. And wouldn't it be extraordinary if we could find that our best cancer care centers not only had excellent cure rates, but also had minimal economic devastation to the households? That would be something I think we should be very proud of, because that's combining preventive medicine with curative medicine. And it's combining care of future generations with care of current generations in a way that's very fitting for the profession.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinicians Roundtable on REACH MDXM one fifty seven, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Linda Emanuel and we're talking about economic devastations of chronic illness. You just mentioned something very interesting. You mentioned that there might be some options that will give some people economic resilience. Could you talk further about that?
1: I would like to see an era in which the medical profession understands that it has an obligation to provide inbuilt economic resilience options for all its patients and their families. I like to call them IER options, inbuilt economic resilience options. And I call them inbuilt because I mean programs that are provided within the medical sector so that it is within our control and so that it is part of what we can design to be consistent with our medical professional calling. It doesn't mean to say that the private or public sectors of society shouldn't also do their part. They should. But in the meantime, I don't know what we're waiting for in the medical profession when we have an absolutely massive industry, almost $2 trillion industry, we have the capacity to provide all kinds of options for our patients' family members to get back on their feet economically after they have had an economic impact from illness and its care. So I think that we should start thinking about inbuilt economic resilience options the way we same way we think about providing anti emetics, anti nausea drugs when we provide chemotherapy to patients. We know that there's going to be An unwanted adverse effect, an unwanted side effect of the chemotherapy when we provide it. We also know that there's going to be an unwanted side effect of economic devastation when we provide care for a major illness. And if that's the case, why would we not palliate that outcome? Why would we not preempt it as much as we can by providing these kind of options?
0: Especially in a country where 16% of the gross domestic product is in the healthcare industry and we're spending. $6,280 per capita in the United States, and everybody in the United States is beginning to really look and wonder about this particular kind of health system that we're providing. This kind of option that you have touched on, would it be a low-tech, self-sustaining type of procedure?
1: Absolutely. The kind of option that I think would work best is the kind of option that is well-tailored to the community in question or the community that is being targeted for that option. So, I work in the area of palliative care, so I'm particularly interested in the care delivery service which provides hospice and palliative care to patients and their families who have a serious and life limiting illness. And as we go out and provide care to those families, we actually provide to those families an infusion of an investment in the future, if you will. We train those families with a lot of expertise about how to care for a sick person, a very sick person. And so they learn a great deal about wound dressings and how to move a person in the bed and how to change a bed. A lot of nursing care skills are provided to that family in the course of providing hospice and palliative care. And in economic terms, that's a definite amount of capital that's being invested in that household. So why wouldn't we with a very small additional effort, provide some kind of training and certification program so that those family members who've had this expertise invested in them had the option of taking some additional training to be sure that they provide quality care and then getting certified to provide that kind of care to other families who need it. So those who've had to stay out of the workforce, they've lost their place in the workforce, they've automatically acquired... A new skill that can put them back in the workforce and for those families where the children have had to stay out of school in order to provide care for the family member which happens less in this country but happens a lot in in poor countries those children have some kind of education albeit not in the school place but a a kind of education that can put them productively into the workforce and not only that into a industry the medical industry where there is plenty of room for climbing the ladder based on quality work. So those kinds of options seem to me to be well worth exploring so that we can provide that kind of economic resilience option at really almost tiny uh, incremental additional effort on our part.
0: I'd like to thank Dr. Linda Emanuel for being our guest today, and we've been discussing economic devastation to families that have to deal with terminal illness and some of the options that may be available, I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm@reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.